0: Hello, I'm Hugh Ross and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God. Today we'll be exploring some of the exciting concepts and topics in my new book, Design to the Core. Design to the Core is a culmination of decades worth of research and breakthroughs in science. I couldn't be more enthusiastic about the work we have completed. My latest book is set to release widely in September, 2022. However, today I am privileged to share with you that for partners of our ministry, you'll be able to receive early access to this amazing resource before that launch date. To receive early access to this book, all you have to do is visit reasons.org donate and make a donation of any amount to our ministry. Then in early August, maybe even earlier, you'll receive a copy of my newest book, Designed to the Core. For those of you who already support our ministry regularly, you can expect to receive the book in early August as well. I could not be more pleased to share this resource with you, and I hope it inspires you to share your faith with others. For more information, please visit reasons.org. Again, uh, you can get the book at reasons.org slash donation. Uh, but before I talk about uh, an amazing discovery uh, that ties into uh, Design to the Core, Fuzz, you got a discovery you want to talk about. Let's launch with that.
1: Sure. Thank you. And uh, congratulations on your book. Uh, thank you. Beginning to, to make its way to the light of day. <laughs> uh, it's always a, a fun thing as an author to see your book uh, uh, become a reality. So congratulations. You know, um, I'm going to be talking about a discovery that has implications for the origin of life question, and uh, I think you know uh, many people are interested in in the question: How does life originate here on Earth? How does how do the very first cells uh, appear on Earth, and what what were what were the events that led to the uh, you know the origin of life? And this is not only a question really of scientific interest; it's actually a big question in the sense that it has philosophical and theological right. ramifications. You know, did life originate through uh, unguided, undirected processes? Was it the the work of a creator? Uh, but also, uh, it has implications for how we think about ourselves as human beings and what is our place in the cosmos. And in fact, uh, when I began to study the origin of life question as a graduate student 35-plus oh, years ago, uh, that investigation convinced me that there had to be a creator, that there was no way that chemistry and physics could generate uh, the very first cells, that there had to be a mind behind everything.
0: And I'm guessing you're even more convinced as a result of this new discovery, right?
1: Yes, well, (laughs) you know, the, the, the contravening 35 years has really only demonstrated more and more intractable problems with chemical evolutionary scenarios for the origin of life, yet from a scientific perspective, most investigators are, are pursuing uh, chemical evolution as the means to explain uh, the origin of life. They're approaching it from a materialistic, uh, you know, natural process standpoint. And every step in the process of the origin of life is replete with what I would deem, and I think you would deem, intractable problems. Right. Including how do you explain the origin of of prebiotic materials and the building blocks for for life. And so there's a number of ideas that have been proposed. Stanley Miller's original ideas were that, you know, these uh, gaseous molecules in the atmosphere could react under high energy conditions and produce prebiotic materials that would accumulate in the Earth's oceans, you know, and then undergo chemical complexification to, to generate building block materials that idea is is largely being abandoned for the most part by original life researchers some people have suggested maybe you know volcanic emissions on the early earth could have created a milieu where prebiotic materials could have formed there's you know significant problems with that approach some have suggested hydrothermal vents that doesn't work for a variety of reasons that you and i uh, detail in both the book uh, in the book origins of life and then right. in in creating life in the lab i revisit some of those issues
0: and just to be clear we're talking about the building blocks of the building blocks of life molecules yes we're not talking proteins dna and rna we're just talking about what composes those
1: I- exactly yeah you know the, the small organic molecules that could then in turn react to form things like amino acids and nucleobases and fatty acids and sugars so that's what we're we're talking about here. And so you know, one of the ways that, that people are exploring uh, accounting for the building block materials for life is through extraterrestrial delivery. You know, early in the Earth's history, there were a high frequency of impactors striking the earth, asteroids, comets. there was an influx of interplanetary dust particles. So part of the argument is, well, maybe these delivery mechanisms were uh, not only delivering, you know, impact or, or these impact events were maybe delivering organic materials uh, to the early Earth, and part of the the motivation for thinking that that's a possibility is the the discovery of carbonaceous chondrite meteorites and analysis that has been done on you know um, the organic extracts uh, from those meteorites. Those they typically run about 20 percent carbonaceous material. Is that that's right?
0: That's true. And uh, they've discovered well over a hundred carbonaceous molecules in them.
1: yes. and in, in fact, uh, uh, g- not, great that you br- brought that point up because here's a, a, a what's called a chromatogram of of uh, a, a typical chromatogram that you would see in terms of the total organic extracts from uh, a, a carbonaceous chondrite. I think this was from Murchison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each this is a chromatogram where each peak, Approximately represents a single molecule. It's probably it's much more complicated than that, and of course you see a lot of noise or right. what appears to be noise, which are actually microscopic or very small peaks indicating a you know a trace amount of certain materials.
0: But and Murchison is the biggest of the carbonaceous molecules yes. that have ever been recovered.
1: Yes, and and so this is you know um, indicating that there are uh, there is a rich abundance of organic materials. Uh, and and people have discovered uh, 96 uh, amino acids, by the way, in Murchison. Oh, not all of them, of course, are biologically relevant. They have also recovered uh, uh, six purines, and purines are a, a, a class of chemical compounds that include two of the components of DNA, adenine and guanine. And so, uh, uh, so this is a
0: we're talking b- nucleobases here, right?
1: That, yes. Yeah. This is not the entire you know, nucleotide, these if are just... I remember
0: right, too, they found six, maybe seven of the bioactive amino acids.
1: Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head what the, the number of amino acids that have been discovered that are biologically relevant. It,
0: I know they found at six, and I know they have not found more than seven. I think there's the yeah. seventh one, there's debate over. Yeah. But it still means a majority are missing.
1: Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, you know, there's well over, organic chemists know of well over 500 amino acids. Right. And so, uh, you know... You but know, they have
0: found the simplest of the bioactive amino acids. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right, glycine, alanine, right. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, but, you know, here in this diagram, it shows uh, the, the five nucleobases that are found right. in DNA and RNA. A, G, C, and T, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine are found in DNA, whereas in, in RNA, uracil replaces thymine. Uh, but only two of those have been discovered Uh, up to this point in in carbonaceous chondrites, that would be adenine and guanine. Uh, And this, of course, is really interesting because if you're going to build DNA, you need to have these nucleobases. These nucleobases are part of of the building blocks for DNA and RNA, which are called nucleotides or ribonucleotides for RNA and deoxyribonucleotides for DNA and and you know it's these these ribonucleotides or deoxyribonucleotides in DNA linked together kind of in a head to tail manner to form uh, two strands that align um, in an up like a uh, align uh, to produce a ladder architecture mm-hmm. that if you twist that ladder you get a the well-known DNA double helix but as you if you look on the right of this diagram it gives you the molecular details where the backbone is consisting of alternating deoxyribose and phosphate subunits and attached to the de- deoxyribose in the one position are one of the nucleobases.
0: This e- is a nice diagram fuzz because it really shows you how they link together.
1: Yes yeah it's a yeah it's an exceptional diagram uh, and but again, so what we're looking at with these nucleobases or is not a nucleotide, but really one of the components that make up a, a, a right. nucleotide that's necessary to build DNA. And again, uh, as, as we mentioned, only these two have been discovered uh, up to this point in, in the carbonaceous chondrites. And this is where the paper that I want to talk about comes into play. Uh, this is uh, work published in Nature Communications by a team from Japan that uh, have identified uh, pyrimidines uh, in, in, these mer- in these carbonaceous chondrites. Uh, so they've identified uh, uh, uracil and cytosine. Uh, yeah, in
0: interesting. That paper says wide diversity, and we're talking two.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, there's there's a wide diversity of of nucleobases, but not of the of the purines Of and
0: the, the p- bioactive ones. You need. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean they discovered a few others that are non biologically right. significant. But to say it's a wide diversity, I think, is a, is a bit of an overstatement. Bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah. But what they did in this, in this particular study is they developed, really, uh, state-of-the-art analytical methods, uh, where they developed a, a, an extraction technique that was specifically designed to target nucleobases, and they were, were using analytical uh, instrumentation that allowed them part-per-trillion detection. Wow right and so um, you know in the early studies of the Murchison meteorite analytically I think it was part per million
0: that's right part per million and then
1: uh, the techniques have have improved to part per billion and so now they there really are have a juiced up analytical system that can go part the factor per trillion.
0: Of a million improvement that's incredible yeah
1: yeah well um, uh, it's it, this is an exceptional paper from an analytical chemistry standpoint. And uh, what they ended up doing is studying three separate carbonaceous chondrites. These are very familiar meteorites to, to, to many people. Uh, on the left is the, uh, the Murray, which fell in 1950 in Kentucky, I think. The middle is the Murchison or a piece of the Murchison that fell in Australia in 1969. And then on the right is uh, the, Tag- or the Lake Tagish, Tagish Lake, yeah. meteorite. I can't remember. The, I remember when it fell. Uh, but I can't remember the year now. It was in the early 2000s. Do you remember the precise year? I don't
0: remember the precise year, but it fell in a frozen Canadian lake. And, yeah. and it has a distinction of being the most quickly recovered. Right. So it's the least contaminated right. of the meteorite. Right. And, and,
1: and that actually is really very important because there's always concern when you do a chemical analysis of, of extracts from these meteorites that you're not actually picking up contaminants from the environment. Right. Right and or, or that these contaminants haven't in, haven't infused the meteorite and so the the research team was well aware of this concern and so they they had not only samples of the the meteorites but also samples of the soil that was adjacent uh, at least to the to the to the Murchison and the Murray and they were able to show that their ex the the nucleobases that they extracted. Uh, actually had a different profile than what you saw in the soil samples, and in fact they saw nucleobases in the meteorites that weren't present in the soil samples. They also looked at the racemization of alanine, or they looked at the chirality of the alanine recovered and they saw it was a racemic mixture, which suggests it's not contamination. There was an, another interesting study they they did as part of this where they had apparently two pieces of the Murchison that were different masses. And uh, apparently the 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 sense is that if you're dealing with terrestrial contamination, then the the amount of the concentration of recovered nucleobases should actually be proportional to the size of the meteorite fragment. And they didn't see that relationship. They saw it as being de- the concentration independent of fragment size. So those three things suggested to them that they probably were dealing with indigenous materials, not contamination. Well, let
0: me bring up another issue. If it's not contamination, I would expect that the Tagish Lake meteorite would have the same uh, amount uh, that you would get in the Murray and the uh, Murchison. Is that, was that the case? Or well, I mean,
1: the... No, I mean the the um, the diversity of the, uh, the 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 Lake Tagish meteorite was less than the Murchison in the Murray, and the levels were much lower. For, that's for,
0: a concern for me because I would expect if it's not contamination, all three would be the same.
1: Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point. Uh, something else that they didn't do that I would have expected that they would do because they were using mass spectrometry as part of the analytical methodology. Was to look for the uh, uh, carbon thirteen and deuterium enrichment mm-hmm. because extraterrestrial organics are enriched in those two isotopes. Right. right. They sh- they should have been able to do that in their experiment. They didn't report any results. That would have been, I think, something else that would have been uh, worthwhile to have. But I mean, I mean, I think they went through reasonable efforts to say that what they're dealing with is is largely indigenous. But again, you can never fully rule out contamination being... Well,
0: especially with Tagus Lake having lower abundance levels. Yeah. I mean, that's a concern for me.
1: I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So anyway, uh, through this analysis, they discovered that in the um, uh, Murchison, about 150 parts per billion of adenine, uh, and then the, the levels fell off, uh, not dramatically, but with guanine and, and other non-biological purines. And they, they detected uh, on the order of about uh, a part, one to two parts per billion of the pyrimidine. Mm-hmm. When they went to um, the Murray meteorite, they were seeing about 50 or so parts per billion of adenine. Uh, and again, about one to two parts per trillion, sorry, parts per billion of the pyrimidines, including uracil and cytosine. And then... With the, the Lake Tagish, they were only seeing about 10 parts per billion of the adenine and, um, again, uh, trace amounts of the pyrimidines. And the the number of species they saw in, in the Lake Tagish was lower. So, you know, this is all, but, but the, the, the way this result has been interpreted is, oh, look, extraterrestrial delivery could produce the building or provide us, I'm sorry, with, with the, the building blocks with the building blocks that we would need for DNA, the nucleobases we would need for DNA. and And again, you know you, as you' as we're discussing, contamination is always something that is of concern, but it's remarkable to me how low the levels are. So if indeed, this was a source of of you know prebiotic materials for the origin of life, it's not a lot of material that's being delivered when you're talking about stuff on the order of part per billion. Because remember, these meteorites and or and, and other extraterrestrial sources, when they hit the earth, it's going to be a dilution effect where the surface volume of the earth now <laughs> is going to dramatically lower the effective concentration right. uh, quite substantially. So, yes, maybe indeed some of these materials are delivered to the early Earth. But that the inventory that's delivered is going to be inconsequential, I would argue, to the origin of right, life. right. And you know, it's interesting that when we look at the the carbonaceous deposits on the early earth, we don't see a carbon uh, thirteen or deuterium enrichment in those deposits, which would suggest that this was that a significant fraction was coming from extraterrestrial delivery. Instead, we see, carbon-12 enrichment, which suggests that these carbonaceous materials in the oldest rocks on earth are actually biological in origin.
0: They're the decay products of a living material. Right, right, yeah.
1: right. Another problem is is chemical selectivity. Uh, and so this is an example of, of the types of things that have been found in, in things like the Murchison. And the point here is that, you know, you're dealing with, again, a, a diversity of materials. And so even if you are you know delivering extraterrestrial materials it's go, the 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 materials that you're looking for are going to be swamped out
0: they're being diluted by
1: by other yeah. uh, by other quote unquote nucleobase type materials so so i mean this is a scientific milestone and in, indeed they discovered evidence for you know pyrimidines in in these meteorites so this is a, a first ever type of discovery Uh, You know, but I think to to claim that this is somehow providing us with uh, any kind of insight into the source of prebiotic materials and the building block materials for life, I think, is really a stretch. And and so this doesn't solve the problem of where do these, uh, where where do do life's building block materials come from in an original life scenario?
0: Well, they found just two of the five nucleobases. So there's three missing, and the two they did find— and the Taggers Lake thing are extremely low abundance levels. Right. And even with Taggers Lake, you've got the possibility of right. contamination.
1: Right. I mean, another way you could explain the difference in, in, in diversity and in concentrations may be uh, to say that these materials were forming in, in the meteorites, you know, after the meteorites formed in the solar system so in other words that these are not necessarily ancient organic materials that go back to four and a half billion years ago but they may be materials that formed in situ in the in the in the you know the 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 extra or sorry in 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 the you know in the material or sorry in the in the material that constitutes the meteorites you know before it struck the earth which then would give some you know credibility to the idea that maybe some of these lab experiments that people have done uh, are identifying chemical pathways that could, in principle generate you know organic materials that would be interesting to the origin of life if you assume the meteorites become kind of a proxy for the early earth. But then again, you're still dealing with the 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 issue of very low levels and the selectivity problem. And so maybe some of these chemical reactions in in the lab that have been discovered may have contributed to the formation of these materials on the early Earth, but the productivity would have been insufficient, you know, to really be relevant to the origin of life. So anyway, uh, you know, this, you know, doesn't move anybody any closer to really understanding the origin of life through materialistic means. But it is interesting that I see more and more original life researchers appealing to extraterrestrial delivery as the means to explain where prebiotics come from. And in fact, just as I was preparing uh, for this recording, uh, this this news item was published just a a, a day or two ago where uh, a team from Japan, I guess, sent a probe to uh, an an asteroid and then were able to collect samples and return them to the Earth, which is amazing. That's an amazing technological feat. And they discovered amino acids apparently in these asteroid samples. There's no scientific paper that's that I can find that's connected to this news item. It could just simply be a press release way well ahead of the the, the actual scientific paper just to generate some excitement as a as a preliminary result. But this is going to be, again, something that's not going to go away because already the claim here is that, Again, asteroid delivery could have contributed to the origin of life. Well, you
0: know, Fuzz as an astronomer. I say, okay, what's the origin of these meteorites and asteroids? Fundamentally, it's interstellar molecular clouds. Mm. And likewise, astronomers have been using their spectrographs to detect carbonaceous molecules. They've now found over 140 of them, uh, but they've yet to find an amino acid or a nucleobase or any of the complex sugars. Mm. However, they're only able to detect them right now one part per billion. And so I do agree with you that if you're dealing with meteorites and asteroids, we would expect a slightly higher concentration. Yeah. But there should be a relationship that you can calculate between what you detect in an interstellar molecular cloud and what you expect in a meteorite. Mm. And I've read some papers where they say, well, maybe the meteorite coming through Earth's atmosphere generates some chemistry that concentrates it or the meteorite winds up shedding material uh, that would actually give you a higher concentration because you're getting rid of stuff uh, that's not carbonaceous. Uh, But there should be a relationship. And so until we find uh, these molecules in interstellar molecular clouds, uh, then I don't, and again, I think that sustains. We're looking at really low abundance levels. Uh, The Tagish Lake meteorite is way more abundant than what we see in interstellar molecular Mm -hmm. clouds. So uh, perhaps there's some contamination going on there or something's happening uh, where the meteorite is being ablated as it goes through the atmosphere, uh, getting rid of stuff that's not carbonaceous and that would explain mm-hmm. the higher concentration. So I think this is a fertile area mm-hmm. uh, for biochemists, uh, for you know, uh, geologists and astronomers to work together to say, let's see if we can really figure out what's going on. But the bottom line is, This is not good news for the naturalists.
1: No, it's not. It's yeah, yeah, and again, it's it's fascinating to to speculate on what the chemistry is that's producing these materials, you know. And it's very clear that organic chemistry happens. Oh yeah, yeah, and it likely is happening would have happened on the early Earth as well, but again, it it, the 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 question is is it productive enough? Because you either that or you've got to explain some kind of concentration mechanism on the Earth itself. To, to produce effective, you know, high, high enough concentrations of these materials to affect, you know, sufficient chemical processes. Well,
0: that's where I think the meteorites are significant because you've actually got a concentration mechanism going on with meteorites compared to interstellar molecular clouds. But once these things land on the earth, is there any other mechanism that could yeah. significantly concentrate? And as I read the scientific literature, the answer is no. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, so uh, that's, that's what I've got for us. So
0: Okay, well, let me see if I can uh, get my slides up for... This is just a, an image of our star of the sun showing a really big flare coming off the sun because what I'm going to be talking about is uh, flares. All stars have flares, uh, but there's two papers I want to discuss here uh, that talk about just how extraordinary our star of the sun is. Mm-hmm. There is no other star like the sun and so uh, this first paper here is extreme energetic particle events by superflare associated uh, from solar-like stars and in an earlier paper the Sun is less active than other solar-like stars and so here shows a really big flare coming off the Sun uh, this is uh, and then what these two papers do is they basically took a particle acceleration and transport model, it's a computer model, and it was done in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. The older models were done in one dimension. It's a two-dimensional model. And then they combined that with a survey, of what they call young solar analog stars. Stars that are the mass of the sun, have the same composition of the sun, the same age of the sun, or, uh, you know, same uh, characteristics. But they looked at the young ones, and uh, so basically they're trying to get an idea what was the Sun like when it was young and what they discovered in the survey is that these young solar like stars have really strong surface magnetic fields so uh, our star of the Sun is like about one Gauss if you average it over the whole surface what you see with these young solar type stars it's a hundred to four hundred Gauss so strong magnetic fields and large star spots I mean I've been looking at the sun through my telescope since I was a teenager, and probably the most significant coverage I saw uh, was a little bit less than 1% of the mm-hmm. surface of the sun. Uh, but when you see these young solars, it's between five and 10% of the surface of the star is covered by these huge star spots.
1: So what, are, what is a star spot precisely? Well, star
0: spot is a local area on the surface of the star where you got a much higher magnetic field mm. than what's normative for the rest of the surface. And because of the high magnetic field, uh, that means you get a dark spot because instead of just the heat of the star coming off, uh, you got heat energy and magnetic energy. Mm. And so the fact that you have gotta split the total energy in that region uh, between uh. heat and magnetism means you get a colder spot than you would in an area where you don't have a strong magnetic field. I see. So that's that's what a sunspot is. A sunspot is a place uh, where you've got local strong magnetic fields, uh, and therefore the radiation coming up in that area is less, well, the light radiation is less than the radiation you get from other parts of the star. So that's all you need to know about star spots. Uh, But star spots, because of the strong local magnetic fields, that's a place where the flares take place. It generates particle radiation. You get a strong wind coming up in the star. And so, uh, and it's the, it's the particle radiation that poses a problem for life. Uh, but what's interesting about the paper is they said, it not only poses a problem for life, it poses a problem for the origin of life. We were just talking mm-hmm. about the origin of life. So I'm glad our two discoveries kind of link together. But they're basically pointing out hey, based on these young solar analogs, we know that the origin of life mm. dates back at least 3.8 billion years ago on the Earth. That takes us far enough back in the history of the solar system that we're going to have these strong uh, flare events and particle radiation bursts that are going to pose a problem. Mm. And so, you know, you've got this prebiotic chemistry going on the Earth. But at the same time, it's being bombarded uh, by the solar radiation, these frequent super flares. Mm. And uh, that's going to you know, basically upset any possibility yeah. for the origin of life from a naturalistic perspective. So uh, we're just talking about how it's getting more and more intractable mm. for the naturalists to explain the origin of life. Well, this paper basically adds one more intractable problem, and that is Hey, the early sun mm-hmm. uh, is going to be pouring out a lot more super flares at a much higher uh, rate and a much uh, greater intensity uh, than it does today. Uh, and then it's going to have implications for the chemistry of the atmosphere, uh, which is going to pose another problem. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the delivery mm-hmm. of meteorites. Well, if they're going through an atmosphere that's chemistry is being disturbed by the solar events, uh, that means mm-hmm. that this a speculation about the delivery of viable prebiotic molecules, uh, we now got another problem. Yeah, uh, The solar radiation is going to be breaking up that chemistry. So, uh, but the sun presently is at its lowest flaring activity level. All stars have flares, uh, but the flaring activity depends on the age of the star. And so what this study was showing, the surveys, young solar-like stars are going to have thousands of times, ten thousands of times, more flaring activity than middle-aged stars. It's also true that as our star gets older, uh, it's going to become, you know, more active in terms of its flaring. You know, one of the jokes I tell Fuzz is that stars are like humans. They're unstable when they're young. They're (laughs) unstable when they're old. Uh, But where the analogy breaks down, humans are stable for most of their lifespan. That's not true as stars. Mm -hmm. Stars are unstable for most of the lifespan. The window of time when they're stable enough for life is very narrow Mm -hmm. uh, in the history. And I think I've got a little graph here that basically shows you this. That green dotted line you see over towards the left, uh, that's kind of the region where they did the young solar analog studies. Okay. Uh, And then that blue dotted line is where we are right now. So it basically shows you that presently we're at the very bottom minimum for flaring activity. And isn't it great that uh, our creator chose to create us when the flaring activity uh, was at the minimum? And uh, this doesn't really show you the drama of what was published in these papers because the vertical axis you see there, uh, it's logarithmic. And so where you see that green dotted line Uh, you have about 10,000 times more flaring activity than what we have today. And at the top there, it's 100,000 times more. Mm -hmm. So basically showing, hey... uh, And, you know, there was a super flare back in 1859, and it basically shut down the telegraph systems around the world. Mm. If that were to happen today, it would knock out almost all the world's power grids, which would be a huge catastrophe. Uh, But fortunately... Uh, That's a relatively minor uh, flare event, but if you go back uh, to the origin of life, we're talking intensities that are tens of thousands of times greater. Mm -hmm. And so this is a new challenge to origin of life from a naturalistic perspective, just recognizing that uh, it's it's not the chemistry that we would anticipate on the surface of the earth today. We've got a completely different environment. Because I see a lot of spec, and we've dealt with this in our book Origins of Life, the assumption that conditions were benign on the surface of the Earth for prebiotic chemistry, and at least no worse than they are today. Well, this is evidence. Hey, yeah. they're orders of magnitude uh, worse than they are today. Right. And so it's a new thing that needs to be taken into account uh, in the origin of life.
1: Now, I mean, it's interesting when you look at that graph because if you go uh, 500 million years back, uh, you you still are at a fairly low point in the flaring activity, and that's about when you see the Cambrian explosion in the, in the appearance of complex, right. you know, uh, uh, animal life. And so the, these, these complex animal life forms are not going to be able to tolerate solar flaring any, any better than we are. Well,
0: the Cambrian explosion animals can t- handle a factor of 10 greater, which is about what you see there. It's about 10 times worse at the Cambrian explosion, beginning the Cambrian explosion. But it explains why, another reason why you'll only see bacteria mm-hmm. uh, previous to the Avalon and cavern explosions. The solar radiation is not going to permit mm-hmm. uh, life anymore, uh, advance in microbial life or colonies of microbial life. Uh, but another reason, of course, is we need 3 billion years of bacterial activity right. to chemically transform the surface of the planet
1: for plants and animals. I mean, it's remarkable when you think about the fact that That chemical transformation creates an environment that makes the Cambrian explosion possible at the precise time where the solar flaring activity is... Well, you've
0: given me a new idea, Fuzz, (laughs) because I've written an article about how the Cambrian explosion, the Avalon explosion, pardon me, happens at the very first time that oxygen permits that life to exist. This adds another component the uh, Avalon explosion happens at the very first time that the radiation would permit yeah. uh, that life to exist. And then with the uh, Cambrian explosion, you've got even more complex animals. Right. So that's something to follow up on. I'm going to actually dig into the literature and see if that could make a...
1: Yeah, and and when would you start seeing like a, a the continental shelf and the uh, kind of forming? Because I, I've also heard people argue that The Cambrian explosion is also happening at a time where there's sufficient continents. You need continental land masses, ironically, in order to have actually animals in the Cambrian because they have to have a shallow water environment or a relatively shallow water environment to live.
0: Well, uh, you've probably heard of the great unconformity. That's Mm -hmm. a geological catastrophe that happened uh, just before the Avalon explosion of life. And really what it is is a massive tectonic event that causes landslides off of the continents mm. into the oceans. But that's what forms the continental shelves. Ah. And it's that continental shelf environment, which was crucial to have the Avalon explosion <laughs> and later uh, the Cambrian explosion. So, yeah, the geology factors into this as well. Moreover, it was that uh, uh, great unconformity, those massive landslides off the uh, uh, continents in the oceans that drove the deep oxygen cycle mm. that caused the oxygen to jump from one percent up to eight yeah. percent, which is the minimum needed for Avalon life. So yeah, this is all beautifully connected. And by the way, this is all in the book, Designed to the Core.
1: Okay, so yeah. the, so people definitely want to to get a copy of that book. Uh, th- it's fascinating to me just how everything everything
0: con- fits together. Yeah, the, the, the confluence the geol- of events right, is right, remarkable. Right. But I want to conclude this with one other thing that's also in design to the core, and uh, that is that the Sun has the lowest flaring activity of all known stars. So astronomers have not just surveyed young solar analogs, they have surveyed middle-aged solar Mm -hmm. analogs. Stars that are the same age as the Sun, uh, the same mass as the Sun, and are close to the same composition. But what they discovered is when we compare the sun's flaring activity uh, to the stars that most closely match uh, the sun, the sun is by far the lowest. All other stars that come closest to matching the mm-hmm. sun's characteristics have significantly greater flaring activity. And then this paper I was referring to here, I mean this is uh, came out after Design to the Core but it, uh, it confirms what I wrote there. This book I did, this article I did cite in Design mm-hmm. to the Core, and it was a comparison of the luminosity stability of the most solar-like stars compared to the sun. Mm. And uh, this is a figure you'll see in the book. So the top one shows you the luminosity variability of the sun, and the bottom one shows the star that places second to the sun. Mm-hmm. So that's the second best star we found out of the millions of stars. So it's the same at. scale for both? Same scale for mm. both. So you can see that the uh, uh, lower uh, image, you're getting consistent, significantly more, five times more uh, luminosity and stability than you get for the sun. And the question is, well, if we were orbiting a star that comes second to the sun at luminosity stability, could we have global civilization? The answer is no. Yeah. Uh, that would be too unstable for us to have global civilization. We need to be orbiting a star. And the only star that we can find in our Milky Way galaxy that has an extremely low level of uh, luminosity variability is our star, uh, the sun. But yeah, you'll see this figure uh, right. in uh, design uh, to the core.
1: So so um, is there a fundamental understanding as to what contributes to the, the flaring? Right here. (laughs) Great. (laughs)
0: Because I've got a couple of chapters in the book where I compare the planets orbiting our star the sun with the planets that are orbiting extrasolar planetary systems. And now we have found 5,000 planets Mm -hmm. orbiting stars outside of our solar system. When you look at what are called the rocky planets, uh, these are the relatively small planets that Mm -hmm. are predominantly rock with a thin atmosphere around relatively thin What we're discovering is you've got the solar system, which only has cool Rockies. And that's defined as a rocky planet that orbits farther from its uh, star uh, than Mercury orbits uh, Mm -hmm. the sun. Uh, Whereas when you look at exoplanetary systems, notice none of the rocky planets Mm -hmm. that they've discovered uh, orbit their stars as distantly as Mercury. Uh, matter of fact, uh, most of them are orbiting less than 10 percent of the distance between uh, the Sun and the Earth, So four times closer to their host stars in Mercury orbits. And then you've got what are called the warm Rockies, which is between 10 percent and the orbit of uh, Mercury. And only recently have astronomers been able to figure out why our solar system is the exception. And how this actually explains the sun's incredible luminosity stability, and so recognition when they compared the sun with the most solar-like stars, had a unique composition, very low in lithium abundance, mm. and also low in what are called the refractory elements. Uh, that's an, a refractory element is an element uh, that at room temperature wouldn't appear as a liquid or a gas. Okay, so it's basically a solid or a crystal, and what they're discovering is that the sun has a very low abundance Mm. relative to solar-like stars, but when we look at the planets orbiting uh, the sun, they're very rich in refractory elements Mm. compared to what we see uh, with planets that are orbiting uh, other uh, stars, and our planets are denser, which Mm. is kind of an enigma because the more distantly our rocky planet is from its host star the cooler it will be mm-hmm. and therefore you would expect uh, that it would retain a lot more of the light material mm-hmm. and not so much of the heavy material but you see the exact opposite mm-hmm. uh, that our rocky planets are denser mm-hmm. than these hot Rockies that are orbiting their stars and so the question is how did that happen mm-hmm. and the answer is well early in the solar system's history the Sun transferred a huge amount of of refractory elements and angular momentum to the newly forming rocky planets, mm-hmm. which would explain why our rocky planets are orbiting so distantly mm-hmm. uh, from the sun and why they're so enriched in refractory elements, why the planets are so big. Because that's the other thing. Mm. If you add up the masses of all the rocky planets in our solar system is way beyond what we see mm-hmm. in exoplanetary systems. And uh, again, uh, our solar system stands out like a sore thumb. We don't see another other mm. solar system or planetary system which got, uh, has such a chemically unusual star uh, with rocky planets uh, that have these extraordinary mm. characteristics but that's exactly what you need to have for life. Uh, we wouldn't be here if we were on a, uh, a warm rocky planet, certainly not a hot rocky planet. Mm-hmm. We need to be in a cool one we need to be orbiting on a big, rocky planet, not a small one and a dense one that's super enriched with refractory elements. Mm -hmm. So it's it's all coming together. That's kind of the story of design to the core, how all these things uh, actually uh, come together.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. It's a, you know, uh, it's remarkable. You know, (laughs) I can remember uh, when I started with reasons to believe, you know, that. You know, the, the work that you'd done at that, up, up, at that point, just identifying all the, di- the different design characteristics of the earth and of our earth moon system and this, the relationship between the earth to the sun and our solar system. And, and it's just remarkable over the years to see how <laughs> that, that list just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And grow. It's, it's absolutely remarkable.
0: Oh, well, it was fun for me Fuz. I got to give a few of the highlights of design to the core in a lecture I gave at Biola University just two days ago. And uh, there was a gentleman in the audience who's an engineer in his early 50s, and he said, this is the most exciting moment of my life, just seeing all these amazing discoveries yeah. and uh, what it means for a Christian faith. And he was especially excited about all the new tools he had uh, to share his faith. Yeah. So, But yeah the heavens are the work of your hands (laughs) one of my favorite passages in hebrews of 110 and uh, this is the book uh, Ah. designed to the core that's the cover
1: i have not seen the cover yet that's a really attractive cover. yeah
0: i I, I like the cover too and of course you can get the book at reasons.org donate and you'll get the book about uh, six weeks early well thank you for joining us today in stars cells and god I hope you found the conversation uh, helpful and encouraging, uh, both on uh, topics dealing relevant to the origin of life and the amazing uh, solar system that we get to uh, live on. Join the discussion in the comments below. If you found this video insightful, please share it with someone who may be interested in these topics. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available for free here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Also be sure to follow us on social media at rtb underscore official to learn more about exciting projects that are in the works. Thank you and once again uh, for watching and remember the more we know about science, the more we know about nature, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you.